Welcome to this week's episode of the Good Luck Club podcast. My guest today is entrepreneur Daniel Loftus, founder and CEO of Urban Fox. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on. Daniel, I wonder if you could start off by kindly telling my audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, as you said, my name is, is Daniel Loftus. Um, I'm from, um, I'm actually based in Dublin, but I'm from the west coast of Ireland. Um, I suppose I've been uh, between different things up to now, but um, I've been, you know, involved in software engineering and data science probably for the last, you know, 10 years or so. Um, and I've eternally locked in in different startups whether it's you know working for them or co-founding them or, or founding them outright um since college so um I, I sort of have a little bit of a background in in uh, all the the sort of nonsense that goes on with uh, with startups uh, right now so so that's sort of me in a in a nutshell i always like to ask guests um, if they could perhaps tell us what success means to them so that our audience could get a gauge of, of how you think. Yeah, so um, look, I suppose to, to give the, the the trite answer, it's, you know, success obviously means different things to different people. But, you know, for 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 me anyway, for uh, with Urban Fox, I think a huge part of that at the moment is sort of building a name for the software um, and for the product that we're that we're building, right? So, um, our software very much sits in the fintech um, anti-fraud space. So, you know, trying to stop fraudsters from from doing bad things, um, and and for me anyway, a big part of what success looks like is for us to be known in that space. Um, you know, when when banks or, or merchants or whatever are, are talking about fraud that we're at least at some point in in the thought process involved whether that's as you know knowledge leaders or as technology suppliers or, or whatever else um, that might be um, so that you know that's sort of the you know the standard the standard answer but like realistically there's there's a part of this that's that's financially motivated right um, you know I think very few entrepreneurs are, are in it just for the good of, of what they're doing um, like there has to be that financial motivation um you know to put up with years of, of what is an incredibly tough lonely uh, and, and sort of horrible slog through through startup through startup life um so it is nice whether whether it is reality or not it is nice to have that sort of light at the end of the tunnel that you know possibly could be you know a financial reward whether it's an exit or 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 whatever um and i think i think it's sort of a mix between the two um, that sort of recognition for for the cool technology we're building and, and that financial motivation as well, that is that is definitely a driver for me personally. Anyway, well, first of all, I thank you for your honesty, Daniel. I think the financial piece for a lot of people sometimes is skipped over as if it's almost something you shouldn't talk about wanting a financial reward, but of course it's it's always there. Out of interest, do you ever think about you know what is a financial reward worth the effort? Yeah, that that's a really that's a really good question, um, and I think it, it's sort of a, an apt question as well. Given you know, as I said, I'm based in in Ireland, and here there is certainly a a, a reputation that when an exit does come along for a founder, um, that it is often you know a quick exit. So maybe not 
the amount of reward that, that should be issued, um, given the amount of effort that has been put in. Um, and I, look, I think it's, it's, it's a massively personal thing, right? So some people, you know, once they start getting that, that sort of momentum behind them that is, you know, either an exit or, or sort of a, a financially successful company, obviously they're gonna have other things in mind. So whether it's sitting on a beach for the rest of your life or, or you know, deciding to go into philanthropic uh, endeavors or indeed, you know, using one startup as a, as a leaping off point to another, um, yeah, it, it it's sort of a tough one. Um, like for a lot of a lot of founders, I think they're nearly at some point or another they're nearly pressured, um, you know, for an exit or whatever it might be. When maybe that's not the right thing. Um, like maybe if they, you know, I think there's there's some evidence in the US where, you know, basically for every year after I think Series A or Series B, that the likelihood of a you know, significant multiple of an exit actually increases quite significantly. So, I, I, is it is it worth it? You know, statistically, it's probably not. You know, ninety odd percent of all startups fail. Um, you know, and and is that are is playing those odds? Uh, you know, a logically sound proposition. It's sort of hard to tell, but I suppose those ten percent that go on and succeed, well, the reward can be quite great whether it's financial independence or or just the sort of uh you know a job well done type of thing like i have built this this great company and we employ people and um and, and we sort of uh people who who are involved benefit from the existence of of the company or the endeavor or whatever else it might be i definitely think it's an interesting area that isn't discussed enough really around what is the financial award to justify the effort and I, and I and I think sometimes what happens in my experience, and if you uh, you have a similar view, is that people work really hard to build something up, and then often they sell it for less than it's worth because they've got tired, or maybe they're scared of competition, or, or things have got more competitive in the space they're in, and they they're not sure their business will survive. So that you know it's, it does feel to me like a lot of businesses get undervalued at exit. Yeah, like it, it it's definitely the case. Um, like again, I can't claim I'm any you know, expert or anything like that. But um, there, there does seem to be a, I don't know, a nearly fatigue that builds in, um, even even with successful founders. As you said, you know, they, they might just get to a point where they're like, this this basically isn't worth it anymore. So I'm going to take a, a smaller exit, you know, just so I can, you know, do something new or do something better. Um, I think it is, it is a, a a strange thing, um, but I suppose a very human thing. We we as founders we tend to get so attached to what we're what we're building, um, and and that can be in and of itself a massive um, a massive handicap because you are you are now sort of tied like in the worst case scenario you you're you're tied to this ship that's sinking or or indeed you're you're sort of tied to this thing that you know for the first couple of years it was it was everything you ever wanted and, and now you're realizing oh crap like it is it is just a massive drain you know personally and and you know emotionally and whatever else um and it is, it is a strange thing like i do think that founders and and you know i'm not saying founders in some sort of esoteric sort of tech only sort of sort of way it's like you know whether it's you know you own a tech company or you own a hardware store or whatever it is 
you know, we need to be a bit more dispassionate. Um, you know, I am not my company. My company is not me. Um, we are two separate entities. And I think more founders would, would benefit a little bit from, from thinking like that. Um, especially when, when, you know, tough decisions have to be made. You know, nine times out of 10, those tough decisions are about, you know, should the business actually even continue on? Um, I suppose if you're if you're getting to the point where it's like, well, do I want to exit for for a five x multiple instead of a ten x multiple? Well, you know that that's sort of a good problem to have in a way. But um, I do think a lot of founders are definitely overly attached to to what they're building um, from nearly a a structural standpoint. I think it's uh, this area we're, we're talking about here, I, I, I do think could be unboxed and, and it's really very interesting. I want to capture your story and I don't want to um, accidentally get caught into this, this discussion, but I do I do see a lot of founders that um, also their life changes and, and, and they're perhaps... For example, they get a partner, or they have a child, or you know, and 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 perhaps running a startup or the one that they're running isn't any any longer in line with their their needs in, in life. And I do think for a lot of people that are thinking, start, I'm thinking about my listeners for a minute. Anyone out there thinking of starting a business, this is something to consider. I do think, for example, I have brought in people to run my company for me in the past when I no longer wanted to run it. Having some succession planning, even if you're young, is a pretty interesting idea. And I also have noticed that if you do get tired and and then you try to sell your business as opposed to someone approaching you to buy your business you're never going to get the value out of it in the same way yeah so so it's just i just think you're bringing up something there that i want people to th- to think about a little bit and and certainly something you know that clearly um you know about i know about but i think a lot of people starting businesses aren't aware and so it's, it's good to talk about it so thanks thanks for sharing on that I'm, I'm interested in in your view on um this question i ask all my guests which is do you think entrepreneurs are, are born or bred yeah um so so that's I suppose nature versus nurture type of thing, right? Um, I, like I suppose the the short answer is like I I don't know, um, and I think it's sort of it, it is it is a impossible to sort of tell one way or the other. Like I know, I know some founders that are absolutely incredible in terms of you know this ability to go out and and hustle, um, you know, and and meet customers and meet investors and and sell this sort of big picture thing. Um, and I do think to an extent that that is maybe not born, but certainly learned at a very early age. And, and maybe it comes down to a confidence thing. Um, but I do think, you know, given the right circumstances, I think maybe people who are not naturally predisposed, predisposed to being a founder under the right circumstances, they can sort of be dragged kicking and screaming to become a founder, to become an entrepreneur. Um, and to an extent, I think that's, you know, what, what I've experienced, right? So I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the type of person that, that is massively overconfident in what I'm doing or what I'm building, but I know that what I'm doing could potentially make a difference um, to, to our customers. And, and one of the things that, you know, we talk about quite a bit here, um, we have some brilliant state-sponsored supports, right? So we've Enterprise Ireland and a few other groups. So if you have an idea and maybe you sit more on the technical side of things, um, Enterprise Ireland and, and whoever else um, will, will literally sit you down and sort of say, right, well, here's what you need to do to start turning this from an idea or a technology in, into a business. Um, and, and I do think, you know, I, I'd, I'd hate to think that there are people out there with really good ideas 
who aren't doing them because they don't have they they feel they don't have the skill set to be an entrepreneur or to be and I do think um like there definitely are people who who can go out there and and just you know build a business and sell and sell and sell um but I also think there's people out there who are are as capable of doing that they just need the the handholding so to speak um and, and they sort of need to learn it and I do think it can be it can be learned um quite quite effectively Again, you're, you're highlighting something that I want the audience to pick up on. I mean, I, I'm actually an, a hustler style of entrepreneur, but I do think it's just one style. And actually, you can hire people like me if that's not what you have as a skill. So, you know, I, I've seen uh, accountants who are founders of companies, for example. And, you know, we all know plenty of programmers like Mark Zuckerberg, for example, <laughs> that, that have started businesses and, and were not necessarily um, business people as such in the classic sense so so yeah i i, I agree yeah. with you um i also want to highlight um enterprise island and and actually the irish ecosystem and how well it's doing so if anyone's thinking of doing a startup island is not a bad place to to start a company and i know that you're you're kind of held up as a well, one of the success stories in ireland right but you're on the spot but that, that's that's what i see yeah, like look, I, I think I think realistically, you know, Enterprise Ireland here, especially, they they do an incredibly good job uh, of shouting about um, uh, local companies, um, you know, uh, and and they they sort of have an expertise. I, I know that it's sort of the, um, the the soft touch diplomacy that Ireland tends to be very good at, um, and I, I actually think there's a, an article in the Economist uh, in the last couple of weeks about how. Ireland consistently hits above its weight in terms of um, diplomatic affairs and, and, and things like that. But one of the things that we tend to be quite good at is um, is leaning into this idea of, um, you know, that we are this this small, very open island nation um, and, and we should shout about our, our accomplishments a bit more from a from a business standpoint. Um, like we have like the, the example that that is usually you know, thrown up there is, is the likes of Stripe and, and Intercom and, and some of those guys that that essentially were, were born and and the idea of the genesis of what they were doing um, grew out of Ireland and, and internationally. Um, and, you know, it is, there's there's a lot of companies even in, in the, the, the Enterprise Ireland sort of cohort that, that I would know and that are doing absolutely incredible things. Um, and, it, and it is, the, the Irish ecosystem seems to know intrinsically when to when to shout about someone um, and when to talk about them and, and build them up and at the same time when to know well you know let them put the head down and just work um, and I do think that's something that that is massively important and I it it tends to get washed away sometimes you know that you can get a lot of this uh, it, as a startup as a founder as a as whatever it's relatively easy to get PR, right? Um, whether it's in Ireland, the UK, or the US, there's always a tech journalist who, who wants to write about the next the next thing. Um, but I do think it is it is very easy for for founders, and again, not just tech founders, but founders in general, to get sort of swept along with that, um, you know, and, and nearly measuring success in terms of well, you know, how many articles have have we have we been written written into in the last number of weeks or or months or whatever. Um, but yeah, like it, it, I, I think the ecosystem here, um, and Enterprise Ireland sort of know 
when to push the accelerator and when to sort of allow companies to, to sit back um, and when to, when to let them put their head down and just, just work. Um, and you see that a lot in the med tech space. Um, a lot of incredible med tech companies based in Ireland who are, you know, doing absolutely, you know, life changing things for people. And you never heard of them because they, they're just, you know, have a staff of 10. They're, they're doing some high end research and they just need to keep their head down and work like they don't need, uh, you know, TechCrunch talking about them um, because they have two customers in the entire world, like it might be Pfizer and, and someone else. But, you know, it, it is that knowing when knowing when to sort of put the head down and work and knowing when to stick your head above the parapets and, and sort of say, hey, look at me. Um, we're trying to sell or we're trying to raise or, or whatever. It's interesting. I, I do think that certain markets, um, countries themselves, do better PR than others on, on kind of highlighting what they're able to do. I mean, of course, Silicon Valley is the most famous of them all. And in a way, that whole concept of what happens when you go to Silicon Valley attracts a lot of people with that mindset too. So it's self-fulfilling, isn't it? And I, and I know a lot of great companies coming out of Ireland, but it is it does still feel like everyone's battling against Silicon Valley. I was also, I wondered, Daniel, um, your education and how that played a, played a part in, in, in your um, development. I, I feel like, for example, in, in England, there's still very much a culture of educating people to, to not take risk. And it's all about, you know, getting good grades and those sorts of things. What, what's the education system like in Ireland? Does it, does it encourage entrepreneurship or do you feel it's, it's got a similar problem to England? I, I think I think it's doing better than it was. Um like at the moment, um, there is in, in secondary schools here, there's a lot of um, focus on entrepreneurial type competitions and things like that. Um, so like uh, build, a uh, build a business competitions. And I think there's even a build a bank competition as well. Um, but I do think, you know, it, it was never propositioned as a as a um, as a career choice. Right. It was it was never, oh, you can you know, go to college, uh, you know, do a degree and then start your own business. It was sort of go to college, uh, get a degree and, and sort of work for someone else. And then maybe, you know, the light bulb moment and, and you, you do something else. Um, I do think uh, I do think here we're getting a little bit better at putting a greater emphasis on the idea that, yes, you know, you can go out and start a business um, and, and in a lot of cases, there's people now starting businesses while they're still in, in high school and secondary school, um, which is really incredible to see. Like uh, about two or three years ago, I, I was asked to judge a, a business plan competition um, from a grouping of local secondary schools. And uh, some of these businesses were at the time, you know, making more money than I was. Um, selling wallets and selling, you know, headbands and things like that. So it's definitely beginning to to be a better, uh, a, I suppose, a, a better focus on the career choice, for lack of a better word, of, of being an entrepreneur. But a lot more, I suppose, a lot more could be done to not only to encourage that, to, but also to provide a better safety net um, to allow people to actually do that, um, at least at least here anyway. And the idea side's interesting as well. Like a lot of people I know who want to start businesses feel like they don't have the best idea or the, the, the kind of the next big idea yet, so they haven't started. How did you come about doing Urban Fox? And, and, and I know you pivoted, so I was reading about your history, but tell us how that played out. 
Yeah, so um, I had, uh, I, Urban Fox, I always say, is my, my, my third startup. Um, it was probably fourth or fifth when you actually break it down. Um, so I'd just come off the back of a previous startup where I'd co-founded it. Um, and that was, uh, it was three, three co-founders and we, we built a business. Uh, and that's what we kept telling ourselves, we built a business. Um, and in reality, we built uh, sort of a chaos engine. Um, you know, we, we raised some money um, and we hired people. And I think at one point we had eight or nine people working for us and we hadn't a clue what to, to get them to do. Um, it, was, it was essentially organized chaos. And then by the time we thought we had a customer um, for a product that barely worked um, in an industry that really didn't want to buy technology products. Um, we realized that the customers we had lined up were basically, uh, it, it was essentially a duopoly. There was two massive companies that were in control of all these sort of sub, um, sub industries and sub businesses. And we realized like, we're never going to be able to sell to them. It'll be a, a two or three year sales cycle and, and they're just colossal. Um, so around, around the same time, I was, I was you know, thinking quite a lot about um, there was a lot of really cool uh, tools coming on the market around um, machine learning and, and things like that and, and predictive analytics. And it was stuff that, you know, two years previous would only have been in, you know, in universities and, and high end research organizations. And now it was available for free as an open source library. Um, so I had this idea at the time, which was, could you use um, predictive analytics, some machine learning and sort of economic monitoring? to build a tool to push notifications to customers of like physical retail, uh, like Tesco or whoever else. Um, so to, to sort of the right message to the right customer at the right time, but make that message so targeted that, you know, there was a, a you know, a 85% plus chance that they'd actually go and, and could buy a product. And, you know, that was intellectually isn't a you know, really interesting concept because you were looking at, you know, elasticity and, you know, uh, propensity to spend and, and economic capability and all of that type of thing. And then when I went to actually try and sell it, no one was interested. And then at the same time, Apple sort of came out and said, oh, our new push notification API sort of does all of that anyway, and it's free. Um, so that really, you know, obviously didn't work out, but the core nuts and bolts of what I had was, was fairly interesting. Um, this idea of using machine learning and, and economic analysis and, and pattern analysis. Um, and around the same time, I was introduced to uh, an individual uh, based in, in Silicon Valley who sort of had been there, done that. So he had built one of the original um, Know Your Customer um, software solutions in the 90s, um, brought it onto the NASDAQ. Um, sold it to uh, an institution for you know many multiples of billions of dollars. So he'd sort of been there. He he'd gone through the entire life cycle, and uh, I'd I had a coffee with him in in San Jose, and it was it was essentially one of those conversations where I wouldn't have arrived at at the suggestion he made on my own, or certainly it would have taken a, a significant amount of time, um, and it was fraud, um, and you know. I spent the next probably six months doing an incredibly deep dive into who fraudsters are, how they operate, uh, all of that type of thing. Um, like it, in, in the pitch to tech stars or whoever else, you know, it's always a nice moment when I put up the slide and sort of say, oh, well, we, we, we not only understand 
the, the victims of fraud, but we understand the fraudsters themselves because we've actually met them. Um, and, and we have, and it was an incredibly deep dive into this area of, you know, basically how bad guys are, are ripping us all off and all of that type of thing. And, you know, we were playing around with that idea and building it. And the Irish government sort of said, you know, well, we'd be interested in investing in deep tech. Um, and then obviously Techstars then came along and, and one sort of a bank, so Techstars is linked with Barclays in the UK and the Barclays Techstars Accelerator. And it was just like, I have now access to these incredible people, um, you know, ba uh, banking experts, uh, startup experts, growth experts, investors, you know, a who's who of who in a way. Um, and it was just this constant validation. So I could say to uh, Andy, one of our advisors, um, do you think this would work? And, you know, within a couple of hours, he would come back to me, you know, with a fraud expert from Barclays or whoever else. And it was just this constant validation cycle. And, and it was a, sort of at that moment, I sort of realized, right, we're actually on to something here. Um, more so than any other any other startup we'd actually, or I'd actually been involved in. Um, and what was actually quite nice, and I think it was the moment where I knew I'm sort of doing the right things here is when I started making the software smaller. So it was actually doing less and less and less removing features and um, you know removing APIs and it, it just became this super neat little piece of software. And I was nearly going to customers and saying, hey, you know, I was talking about this, this huge thing two or three months ago, but now it's just this really minute thing that does a very, very specific job um, and, and the feedback on that was, was absolutely phenomenal. And again, that was very much a sort of tech stars, uh, you know, uh, talk more, build less. So talk to as many people as you can and, and sort of, because uh, again, as techies, we, we love to build stuff, even though we're not getting the right validation on that stuff. And we're still, we love to hear feedback on that stuff and selectively edit it down um to, to what we want to hear but that's sort of been my journey up till now um and, and sort of the conversations of, of how i've sort of gotten here and, and built what i have fascinating um i like this concept a lot of like talk more build less and i know um oh, well, a quick shout out tech stars uh, the folks in london uh, for introducing us so Thank you to them. But I know, um, you know, often people that are thinking of building businesses, there is this tendency. I mean, most people have read um, the Lean Startup by now and in you know, a minimum viable product piece, but, but people still tend to want to build more features for people or, or at least have the option to give people more features. It's interesting that you went back the other way. And, and was that, did that feel risky at the time? Yeah, um, that, that was sort of terrifying um, because all along you have this assumption that my business does X and now I have to validate with people who are experts in that field that, you know, if I go and spend the next year of my life and, and you know, investment money and capital on this, is that going to be a worthwhile proposition? Um, sort of weighing up the idea of risk and reward and, and that type of thing. But realistically, I suppose it, it very much took me out of my comfort zone because I'm I'm sort of just as happy to fire off an email to someone to say, hey, you know, here's our demo video or here's a demo clip of what we're doing. What do you think? Um, 
only to realize after it's sort of been repeatedly told to me that no, you need to sit down in front of people, you need to talk to them and you need to figure out a way to keep them honest. And as much as possible, you need to stop talking about what you're building. Um, you know, don't tell them what, you know, don't give them much detail about what you're building, just get them to talk um, and get them to talk about what their problems are um, and how they're solving their problems at the moment. Um, and some of the conversations I had are, you know, especially in the early days, um, like the first couple of weeks on Techstars were those conversations, you know, I was, I was going back to the hotel thinking, you know, this is, I've made a horrible mistake. This is twisting the business in a way that I'm not particularly comfortable with. Um, and you know, it, it did take a while because you sort of, sort of what we were going back to earlier, you're sort of tied to this, this business and this idea and this concept. Um, when, when realistically you, especially at the earlier stages, you, you, it might be better to be dispassionate about it. So if you do get pulled in a way, um, you can sort of research that in an unbiased way. I think that's a very interesting point. Basically, you're saying, you've got to, you, of course, people feel they need to be passionate about their businesses. But what you're talking about there for your experience is that sometimes you've also got to be able to take a step back, I guess, take some criticism, some feedback, uh, and even you know try to apply a new direction, which isn't that easy when you're in the mid-flow, right, or you've got your opinion. It's, it, it, yeah, I think I think a lot of people can relate to that problem. Um, I, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners right now who are building businesses, and people have told them to do less, and they 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 have this instinct, and it's all, I, I I've had it myself. I think you know, where you feel like, well, if I build more, more chances that customers will want one piece of what I built. Whereas if I yeah. if I build one thing, then I'm limiting myself and the people that will want that one thing, right? Yeah. But 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 it, actually, in reality, you end up being very focused. I mean, I say a lot about people starting businesses. I would say, don't you know, don't do many things in your business. Focus on one thing, make it work, do it well, and then once that's working and doing well, you can scale up into everything else, right? I mean, it's, it feels like a very similar lesson you're you're highlighting there. Yeah, like that. That's again w- with us. That was definitely the case because I remember when when I was sitting down to to sketch out what Urban Fox would do and how it would do it. There was just this litany of features, um, and in my mind, I sort of convinced myself that oh no, these aren't all like twenty different features. This is like one feature, but these are all the the twenty different selling points for that feature, um, and realistically. You know, I could I could raise twenty million dollars and still not build those twenty features. Um, and not only that, it what I found, and again, I'm not a salesperson uh, by by any stretch of the imagination. But if you went into when when I would go in to talk to you know fraud teams in banks or in in merchants, and you start talking about twenty different features, the feedback you get is just so scattered because every person in that room will like one feature more than another because it, it solves a highly particular problem to them, but it doesn't solve the overarching the overarching focus of what they should be doing. Um, and, and, you know, it, 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 I, I, I have notebooks of, of notes where I met different teams and, and sort of said, um, look, this is all Urban Fox does. What do you think? Um, where I whittled it down to one or two main features and, and the feedback was just so it was just so much more useful than sort of this scattergun approach that that we took uh, you know earlier on when we had 20 or 30 different features 
Um, and I think, and I'm not sure is this more of a fintech thing, but in, in the fintech space, you tend to get people who are very, very focused on one particular job within a bank or, or wherever, whether it's money laundering or, or, or that type of thing. Um, and when you sort of uh, resonate with what they're doing, you tend to get this, you know, very honest feedback. Um, like I, I, I distinctly remember having a conversation with a head of fraud for a, a large UK retailer. Um, and we, we were talking about the high, like highly intricate type of fraud. And uh, he, he just made a really interesting point where he said his biggest issue wasn't actually detecting fraud or finding fraud, which was a bit of a bummer for, for me because that, I was trying to sell him, right? It, it was essentially he had no way to monitor his team and to sort of see, well, you know, who is doing better than, than someone else and, and who is performing better. Um, whereas, you know, I could have spent six months trying to sell him Urban Fox and sort of saying, oh, well, we can tack on a performance management tool um, but I think those sort of conversations and I think there's a bit of psychology to it as well um, it's sort of like the hard hat approach so like if you're talking to customers really early and you make them feel like they're part of the, the building process like you're showing them the, the nuts and bolts and you have to put on your, your high-vis jacket and your, your hard hat or whatever they feel a bit more invested in it um, at least that's been our uh, certainly my experience you know, they, they sort of see, oh, well, Urban Fox was at this stage six months ago or three months ago. Oh, now they're, they're, they're here and I've gotten this nice newsletter or, or whatever it might be from them. Um, but that idea of just talking and listening as much as you can through all the stages, right? So, it, it, you know, I, I'd always assume the sales process would be very much me talking to them and me delivering information to them. And then they would go away and make a decision. But what I'm slowly learning is, no, it's it's basically, I, I just prime them with, with the information and, and they sort of come back to me and I sort of listen to their, uh, nine times out of 10, it's their demands or whatever. But it's that idea of, you know, stop building. And, and at the end of the day, unfortunately, you know, the whole thing of having a cool new piece of technology that uses all the, the important buzzwords is only skin deep. You know, once you start actually selling the product, they generally don't care. You know, it, it could be the most sophisticated AI engine in the world, or it could be, you know, 100 monkeys on 100 typewriters. Um, like they don't care as long as it delivers results. Um, and I think as technology people, we have to try and separate ourselves from that pretty, pretty early on. I have to say, you sound like a very good salesperson to me. I mean, basically what you're talking about there is listening to clients. So many people go in there and start selling what they've got. And, uh, and, and but it's, it's a delicate balance isn't it because of course like you're saying what you could have easily done when that client gave you feedback that they needed this monitoring uh, item for their staff you could have pivoted into that and that actually could have become a very successful business on its own a separate business but it wasn't what you did it wasn't what you had so it's, it's interesting again I always think about the listeners how they might leverage that that insight that you know what, what's the balance between like listening to client feedback and adapting your business to be what they need or just realizing you've asked the wrong question of the wrong client and to kind of move on to the next one that actually will need what you what you've got to buy or sell yeah and you know huge uh, like again one of these like early learning learning points was um we had uh, again 
plug, plugging tech stars, we had uh, one of their advisors sit down with me to um, review who I was talking to in different uh, companies. Because um, I I'd sort of thought going on to Techstars that I had, you know, I was a little bit further ahead with the customer validation piece. Um, and I very quickly realized that, you know, it, it's easy to talk to potential customers or, you know, potential customers at the early stage and, and you know, customers at the later stage. But what's actually quite difficult is, is actually talking to the right ones. Um, you know, obviously there's, it, it took, took me quite a while to realize that in a lot of corporates, it's actually really easy to get meetings with, with quite senior people because they love bringing in the, the sort of startup petting zoo every now and again. Like, oh, you know, bringing in a company doing AI and you'll have 20 different people and it makes you feel great about yourself because you're in a room with, you know, 20 interested people, but then you realize like, none of these people are actually whether they want to or not, none of them are actually in a position to push you along the, the journey within that company. Um, and I do think even going back to the born or, born or bred um, sort of thing, that that is something that in terms of Startup 101 should be taught very, very early on. That, you know, you can talk to all of these companies and you can have really good meetings with them. But unless you're talking to the right people in those companies, um, you know, it's a, it's a futile effort um, and to spend the time figuring out, you know, is it the head of fraud I need to talk to or is it, you know, head of AML or is it head of security or, or where does that lie? Um, and again, it's something that I suppose re realistically it's worth putting the time and effort into, you know, going from, again, like the features, it, it's going from having 100 meetings in a month that are okay to having two or three meetings that are absolutely, you know, 100% on target. Did you do that in the early days of the business? Did you talk to clients or did you just see a gap in the market and fill it and then go talk to customers? Yeah, so um, with, um, with the previous business we were building, we just built a product um, and we thought, oh yes, people will like this. Um, I suppose one of the, the founders was, was sort of in that space um, and we were sort of relying on his feedback quite a lot um, and we started building and then we sort of went back to customers and revalidated and started rebuilding and, and that went on for, for months and I remember when I started at Urban Fox I was thinking like I never want to be in that position again because it, it just takes too much effort um, so with with Urban Fox after the pivot and, and when we became more interested in um, fraud, we sort of knew there was there was that gap in the market to detect a very particular type of fraud. Um, now, you know, hindsight is a great thing. I did spend quite a lot of time building and assuming, yes, this this will work for our cust for our potential customers. Um, and, you know, it, it's sort of a binary thing. We, we had quite a, there was quite a few competitors in the marketplace where we could, you know, where, where we could see, well, these customers are all, or these competitors are also doing it. So why not us? Um, our technology is better. We know it's better because of X, Y, and Z. So we, we sort of got to a point and then it was, you know, very much we had to go back nearly to square one a little bit in terms of, okay, well, we thought that the issue was here in, in sort of the customer flow 
in terms of fraud detection, but it was actually a, a much more nuanced problem. Um, but only after sort of talking to those customers, we realized that, oh, well, actually it's the, the, the problem really starts at this point of the, the, the customer journey, not at the point where everyone else seems to assume it does. Um, and again, it, it's that sort of like, I suppose, again, hindsight's a great thing, but it's that idea of going back and I suppose feeling safe to, to go back and validate. So I was lucky enough that I had a couple of early stage, even from the, the pre-pivot Urban Fox when we were customer analytics tool. Um, I had a couple of people in the industry I could go back and talk to um, to sort of say, hey, I'm thinking about pivoting into fraud. Can you tell me everything you know about fraud? Um, so those, those sort of initial warm introductions. Um, and I do think it's a perfectly valid case where you essentially look at competitors and justify the gap or justify the market by saying, well, there's three or four other companies doing this. We, we in theory, do it better. Um, so why not us too? Um, like not every not every startup is going to be building some incredibly unique solution. Um, I, 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 yeah, I think you make a very interesting point there. I, again, I always want to make sure the listeners pick up on it because we, we are having a bit of a lag on technology. So I don't want people to not hear what you just said there. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is that if you're trying to validate a business... Um, of course, you can have an idea yourself, but going out there and talking to customers is one thing. It is an interesting point to also suggest that you look at your competition. I hate to keep using them as an example because I'm not a big fan, but I guess Facebook probably used MySpace as a reference point to show that, you know, 600 billion people have gone online and are sharing content daily. Why not us if we build a better platform? You know, I, I think that validation via competition is, is a pretty interesting thing that not everybody thinks about. Actually, I think often people just see as competition. Just, these are the reasons we're going to beat them, as opposed to using them as a way of validating what you've what you're building. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fascinating. Um, I, I guess um, just bringing it back to my, you know, some of my standard questions of the guests. I'm I'm, I'm interested in um, whether you feel um, luck plays a role in in your in your um, business and how how has it played a role, good or bad luck? Yeah, um, so. I'm I'm not a huge I'm I'm not a huge believer in luck in general. Um, I think we can engineer our own luck um, to an extent, but you know, looking back at it, uh, sort of unbiased, yeah. There, there's there's definitely been a few moments where, you know, I, I and again, not to not to overplug TechStars, but you know, having having the MD of TechStars sort of <laughs> having having the MD of TechStars reach out to me essentially randomly um, and to keep bugging me for weeks and weeks and weeks, um, sending me emails and, and calling me, you know, and I, I, I've said this before, but um, like Kartik, who runs the program in, in London, um, he, he obviously has the patience of, a, of an absolute saint to, to deal with me. Um, I, I think, I think he sort of, you know, up to a day or two before the the deadline to accept the um, to accept your place on TechStars, I was still uncertain, um, and I I distinctly remember signing up in in sort of a very Irish way in terms of oh sure I might as well. Um, there was there was very little rhyme or reason behind it. I just sort of thought ah you know what what is there to lose? But what freaks me out a little bit is looking back on it 
and how unbelievably close I came to saying like, thanks, but no thanks. Um, because that was, you know, obviously to, to lose out on that. Um, and, and all that has happened during it would have been a, a massive, massive mistake. So in, in terms of that, that is probably the, it, you know, in terms of good luck intersecting with maybe some bad luck. Um, and look, you know, in terms of strictly on, on the bad luck side, you know, with the, the previous startup, um, that was, you know, certainly in the last three months of the, the company's existence, it was just one bad thing after another. Um, you know, people leaving the company um, with absolutely good reason because we basically couldn't pay them, um, running out of money um, because we had no customers. There was this constant flow of little bad things that kept happening. Um, and But, you know, it, it did sort of, the, the amount of stuff that I learned from that bad stuff happening um, like I, I think if I didn't learn it or if I, you know, if the the previous company came to a more stuttering end, um, I wouldn't have picked up on it and, and it would probably have been very different in terms of, you know, I possibly would have just gone out and, you know, joined a corporate or, or whatever it might be. But I think there's, I, I don't know, to sound cheesy, I suppose luck is, is what you make of it, right? So, you know, bad luck can be can be reframed as good luck good luck I suppose can be reframed as bad luck but that defining moment where I came down to the wire with Techstars um, and, and essentially randomly decided to join um, you know even looking back on it now it's still you know I, I sort of think like like how unbelievably uh, how unbelievably lucky it was that I actually decided yeah sure I'll, I'll, I'll do it because I wouldn't be here at all talking to you certainly or, or, or anyone else about Urban Fox if I hadn't said yes um, and, and definitely and then like it is engineered luck after that so you know uh, tech stars have this um, mentality of sort of being in the room and being present um, which to be honest I sort of thought was it you know marketing marketing BS a little bit um, but you, you know being in their office in Rise in, in London where you know one day some senior executive from some tech companies has come in for a visit or to look around and all of a sudden you're being introduced to this person who if you sat at home um you know working away on your own would never have happened um so there's that idea as well of engineered luck um which i'm i'm sort of a a big believer in i think it's a it's a good point and um yeah i think a lot of the time People do um, wonder why they don't get lucky, but they, they didn't put themselves out there equally. You had to say yes. And uh, and, and as you say, um, sure, I'll give it a go. Um, so I totally understand. I, I, I feel like um, I only have you for an hour, so I, I think we're running uh, short on time already. We've got a little bit of a technical lag as well, so I, I worry um, about the um, quality of the broadcast today. But I wanted to get to one final question, I guess, with you. Well, two, I guess. One is... Um, do you feel your education helped you or, or, or hindered you in any way? Do um, And what your view is on education generally today? And then if you went back to your younger self and gave some advice just to wrap up the podcast, what would it be? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so on, definitely on the, the education part, um, in terms of the, 
my ability as a software developer, a data scientist, um, I, I did not learn that in college. Um, I'm, I'm essentially self-taught. We did quite a lot of coding in college, but it wasn't particularly heavy duty or, or anything like that. Um, it, there is this like debate right now and, and definitely more so in, in COVID times in terms of, you know, being self-taught. Um, and I definitely think there is um, uh, one hundred percent a place for that in terms of you know someone deciding I want to learn how to you know code or whatever, um, but I do I do think that college or university or even you know school education does provide a level of rigor um, level of critical rigor to to what someone is doing, um, and I always think of this so when I'm working on a coding project um, and I you know I'm having an issue and I show it to a friend of mine who who did computer science in college or, or whatever it might be you can see the the sort of thought rigor around uh, CS that that he might have or she might have and how they apply it to my project which is more I just want to build this thing like whether it's a plugin for for Google home or, or whatever it is and, and they can they can apply more of a methodology based solution to it if, if that makes sense um so yeah like it is uh, education yeah it probably did it did play a reasonably large part in, in getting me to where i am right now um but i i think it's more on the on the rigor side of things and um and again like i left college in the middle of of the the last recession um which basically meant there was no jobs and i sort of had to had to join a startup because at the time it was like there are no real jobs so go and work with a startup um so so i suppose it, it put me on a tra trajectory that that i'm on right now um in terms of the advice that i would give myself when i was younger um you know i think we're a um a a product of our of our decisions um but i suppose one of the things that and you know we've we, we've talked about in the last hour but it's that idea of putting yourself out there a little bit more um, like you never know where the next little conversation might you know might lead on to you know there, there's no point in so maybe say maybe say yes more often to uh, to sort of introductions and, and things like that and, and don't just assume that because you know person person x doesn't have a a you know a title or a credential that that is immediately um appealing to you or, or relevant to you that they don't have something beneficial to add right so you know it could be an, a secondary introduction or it could be an idea or whatever it is but i think that's critically important right and it's just to have those conversations with people and to get sort of a wealth of experience into what you're doing yeah i think a wonderful bit of advice at the end there and my translation is that i i also in my career and at one point, um, when I lived in Hong Kong, I was having twelve meetings a day, and someone said to me, "Isn't this a complete waste of your time?" Of your time, I said, "Yes, yeah, six of them are. I just don't know which six. You know, and I, and I think that's part of it. Sometimes, you, on paper, you think you're going to have a meeting; it's going to be the perfect meeting, and then the one you think is a waste of time, and they they, they completely switch, and you don't you don't ever know until yeah. it happens. So, um, but I you know I wanted to talk more about um, your experiences in accelerators. I, I wanted to ask you more about 
what it's like to meet fraudsters and how what they look like. I have this image in my mind of these really evil people sitting in a in a dark room um, doing sinister things. But in the fact that you've met them, I wanted to ask more about that. Um, I wanted to ask more about the ecosystem in Ireland, but I'm afraid we've run out of time. So I have to have you back, Daniel. I'm going to talk all about that, That's those super. things. And, um yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I want to thank you for your time, and I want to sum up what I've taken away um, from from today. I like um, the concept you said at the beginning of the podcast about building a name as a measure of success. I mean, I was put it in the frame of like build a brand, not a business. I think that's really interesting as a measure of success, building a, and a brand that you're proud of that people want to um, interact with and, and and work with and and work for and so on. I um I always like your your Irish saying as you put Thank it you. um um oh sure I might as well I think I think that kind of links back to your sum up just a moment ago about you know what you'd say to your younger self I think that's actually a really good saying um I like the point you mentioned about focus I think a lot of people get confused about this bit of advice about you should focus and I do think that that's worth considering you know are you focusing or not and what are you focusing on you might be focusing on one brand and within that band 12 solutions but that that alone will not make you successful focusing on on the focus actually it's a theme within my podcast that comes up quite a lot and I think it's worth reminding people what you talked about there the focus piece is so important um, I, this is my translation of what you said but um, not everyone is a hustler so there's plenty of people out there that can be entrepreneurs. There's, there's not just one type of, 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 of entrepreneur. You are actually a good example of that. You don't describe yourself as a salesperson, but in my view, you've learned sales, at least the psychology side of it. And I think um, I, I like this whole concept uh, of, of the no real jobs. So start a startup. I think we should make a T-shirt out of that with your name on it because that's... You no, know, I, I actually think that's something, you know, right now very relevant for a lot of people. It's, um, it's, it's sometimes good to have a recession because it can make you rethink what it is you're actually meant to be doing. And so especially where smart people like you, Daniel, I'm sure you could have got a job every day of the week. And so in a way, um, maybe for our security, we're lucky that you didn't. <laughs> so, uh, so we're lucky you're doing urban Fox and, and protecting us all today. So I like the whole concept of, of less is more. It is, it's a startup mantra you do hear a lot, but I think a lot of people don't understand it. So thanks for taking the time to explain it today. Um, and I, and that links back to that kind of talk more, um, um, build less, build less, which actually is the opposite to what you often hear. It's build more talk, uh, build more talk less. But I like the idea you've switched it. And I do think people should take note that um, talking more about what you're doing, but building less is, is pretty interesting. And actually, I know it's come from Techstars too. So it doesn't surprise me. Pretty, pretty wise advice. So um, engineer, keep engineering your luck, Daniel. Um, and thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thank you very much for, for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Good Luck Club podcast. We know you have thousands of podcasts you could be listening to and you choose to listen to us. If you found Daniel's insights useful today, please give us a comment or click through to Daniel's site and let him know what you think of his business. We hope every week that you learn a few things from the founders that share their stories. I myself as the host always do. And we look forward to seeing you next week.